Good morning, everyone. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, the preaching text in uh, Romans 14, and page 4 in your bulletins, if you guys can turn there. I'll read to you starting from verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, And none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but... As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And in verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. All right, thank you. Uh, That was a long passage, I know. Um, So a a while back, um, I had dinner with a a very good friend of mine. And uh, 
throughout the course of the conversation, it went to uh, theology. And uh, pretty soon we realized that we had pretty uh, serious disagreements with each other on this matter. And uh, I will admit, um, much of that was my fault, but it's, it got heated, you know, and it got really tense. And, um, and then after the meal, uh, there was a kind of coldness and distance in the relationship. And uh, a, a while after that, uh, we started to talk again. And I remember the first thing my friend said to me was, let's never talk about those issues again. <laughs> Why is that? Why is it that serious disagreements tend to fracture relationships? And that the only way we can get along with one another is if we never mention those disagreements. And this is the question that Paul is asking in our passage today. He's asking, how can we live together as a community when so many of us come from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, uh, different customs, different ways of seeing things, let alone different views on doctrines, right? And I think this is a particularly relevant passage for us as Indelible Grace Church because we may, most of us may look alike, you know, we may on the surface be homogenous, but we're all such different people. I know because I've talked with you guys. And we all have different ways of doing things. We all have different ideas of how you know, church should be done. We all have different, even different understandings of certain doctrines. And so how can we as a church be one people, you know, one community? How can we hold on to each other? And so that's the question Paul is asking. And... Um, Today, in this worship service, uh, like last week, it's an impacted service because we're going to share in the Lord's table. And so I'm going to try my very best uh, to make the message uh, somewhat abbreviated so that the service doesn't go on too long. And therefore, um, therefore, this is really going to be just an introduction into this incredibly rich passage. Because as I've studied, studied this passage and I've thought about this now for some weeks, there's just so much here. You know, I could really turn this a chapter into like a four-part series. So it's just going to be an introductory look, okay? All right, so with that in mind, um, here's my outline. I'm going to ask three questions of the text, okay? The first question is, what is it that Paul is asking us to do in this passage? Second question, all right? Now that we know what Paul's asking us to do, how do we do it? What does that actually look like? And then number three, where do we find the strength to actually do it? All right, so three questions. Number one, what is Paul asking us to do? Number two, how do we do it? And then number three, where do we find the strength? All right, so question number one, what is it that Paul is asking us to do? Paul writes in verse one at the very top. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And so Paul is saying to us, welcome the weak in faith. Now, if you think about that, if you really understand what Paul is saying there, you will see how incredibly profound and paradoxical what Paul is asking us to do with respect to community. And if you notice, there's two parts to it. Paul says welcome, right? And the Greek word there means to embrace. It means to invite someone into your home. It means to make someone feel like family. And the second part Paul writes is welcome the weak in faith. Now, who are the weak in faith? 
Uh, we looked at this last week, so we're not going to go into it too much detail. But basically what was happening is that, is that in the church in Rome, there were these two camps, these two groups, and they were fighting. And one group said that it was a sin, that it was wrong to eat meat and to drink wine, and that we should observe all the Jewish holy days. And what's remarkable about what Paul says here is that Paul calls them the weak in faith, meaning they're wrong, right? That's why Paul in verse 14 says that no food in and of itself is unclean, right? So Paul is saying the weak in faith, their theology is deeply in error. And then he says to the strong, right, who have the right theology, he says, but embrace the weak in faith. Embrace those you seriously disagree with. Embrace those who are in serious error. Now, that is very, very different from what the world says about tolerance. Right? Tolerance. Because in tolerance, the world says we can all get along, we can all be happy together, but no one can say that they're right. No one can tell the other person you're wrong. Right? The only way that we can have you know, peace and unity and community is if no one says there's the truth. And it's kind of like that old adage about uh, going to a dinner party, right? What's, what does everyone say about when you get invited to a dinner party? Never talk about religion and politics, right? Because when you do, serious disagreements will arise and people will start to say, I'm right, you're wrong, and there'll be this tension, and then the dinner party is ruined, right? And so this world's idea of tolerance is to take the etiquette of the dinner party and apply it to all of life. And to say that no one should ever judge another person's beliefs. Now what's really fascinating in our passage is that Paul uses the same, almost the same words. He says, do not pass judgment, right? But when Paul says it, if you study what he's saying you realize that he's using it, his understanding is so completely different, right? Because when he says, do not pass judgment, what does he say? Do not pass judgment on your weaker brother. Think about that. Do you you see the paradox in that? You want to say, hold on, Paul. Aren't you contradicting yourself? You just said don't pass judgment. Why are you calling them the weak in faith? And so obviously Paul is, 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 is on a completely different wavelength here. He's saying, of course, you have to make negative evaluations, right? That doesn't make any sense. You know, that's illogical. You ha- there is a right theology and there, is a, and there is a wrong theology, right? There's right and wrong, but Paul says, do not let... Uh, what, does it mean? What, is, what does Paul mean when he says, do not judge? He says, don't let those disagreements, don't let someone's error be an excuse for you to pour scorn on that person, to despise and look down on that person. Don't let it be a reason to break faith, to break fellowship. And so what Paul means when he says um, opinions, I'm sorry, I completely lost. Oh, so, so what Paul means uh, when he says uh, don't pass judgment is he's saying don't despise, don't scorn. He's saying embrace the weak in faith, Okay. So that's the first point. So how does that work? What does that look like? That leads me to my second point, uh, which is how do we do it? And there are two ways. And the first thing is to see at the end of verse 1, Paul says, do not quarrel over opinions. Okay? So do not quarrel over opinions. What does that mean? Well, that means that you need to realize that the differences that you have with your brother is really over non-essential doctrines 
and not the gospel. You see, Paul is not saying that we should never, you know, we should never fight over what's central. The gospel is central. You know, if you read actually through Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul employs incredibly strong language to talk about those who would oppose the gospel and twist the gospel. And let me just read you a snippet of, of, from Galatians and just listen to what Paul has to say. Look how strong he comes out. He says, but, if, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As if that wasn't enough. He goes on. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. And so what Paul is saying is, of course the gospel is central. Be willing to fight to the death for the gospel. Never compromise. Never give up. Never relent on the gospel. But on everything else, know that it is non-essential doctrines. Right? And what Paul actually says is, it's do not quarrel over opinions. And uh, it's a little bit unfortunate because the English translation opinions um, is a little bit misleading. Because when we think opinions, what do we think? We think of this kind of situation, right? Someone says, uh, Starbucks coffee is the best coffee, right? And the other person says, no, you're wrong. That's just your opinion. Pete's coffee is the best, right? And so we tend to think of opinions as opposed to objective truth, right? Is that what Paul means, right? When he says opinions. Unfortunately, uh, the Greek word there, it doesn't really have an exact English equivalent. And so um, it's a little bit hard to translate, but we can kind of see it from the context. What does Paul mean when he talks about opinions? Look at the passage. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about whether or not eating and drinking certain foods is a sin. Now, in contemporary English usage, is that question a matter of mere opinion? Absolutely not, right? The Bible is clear. All foods are clean, right? You can eat and drink anything you want so long as you don't abuse it. And so... When Paul says opinions, he's still talking about right and wrong. He's still talking about objective truth. That's why Paul says, right, he calls those who think foods are unclean, he calls them weak in faith. But this is really amazing. This is really astonishing. Paul says, but even on those matters in which Scripture is crystal clear, and Scripture is crystal clear on foods, right, whether it's clean or not, even on those matters, so long as it is not central, so long as it is not the gospel, do not let it be a reason to break fellowship with your brother. Right? And so what Paul means is don't quarrel over opinions. He's saying don't fight over non-essential doctrines. And when I say that, I feel like it's really speaking to me, you know, because um, I'm Reformed, right? I'm a Calvinist. And uh, what is our reputation? Our reputation uh, sometimes is that everything is important, you know, and we fight over everything, you know. But Paul's saying don't fight, don't quarrel over everything if it's not the gospel. Now, if that's true for matters which are crystal clear in Scripture, how much more is that true 
for issues in which there's a little bit more ambiguity, right? I'm talking about things like gender roles in the church, things like uh, baptism, church government, charismatic gifts, um, you know, the relationship between the church and uh, politics, uh, end times. I can go on and on and on, right? How much more should we show charity and generosity of spirit on those issues? Now, listen, don't get me wrong. It's very easy to misinterpret me here. I'm not saying that, oh, on these issues, the Bible is so so convoluted. Who knows what the Bible is saying? Oh, we shouldn't even think about it. Absolutely not. Right? As Christians, it's our obligation to really study, to really think through, to really try to understand. And as your pastor, I will try to, to do my best to teach you, to try to instruct you. But what I'm trying to say is this. There will be occasions, I know maybe some of you are going to gasp, there will be occasions when I'm teaching you and you're going to say, I don't think Pastor Michael has that right. Don't let that be the reason to say, then that's it. <laughs> we can't be together. You know, what's central is the gospel, you know? And what that means is that, um, does that mean, therefore, that, oh, because these are non-essential doctrines, we shouldn't try to correct each other? Absolutely not. Notice that Paul continually peppers throughout the passage. He continually says, all food is clean. All food is clean, right? But notice the main thrust of the text is pointed at rebuking the strong. And therefore, right, when we try to engage in dialogue, when we try to correct one another, when we try to teach one another, do it with humility, do it with absolute patience and kindness and love, and don't just be the kind of obnoxious jerk and saying, you're wrong. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) All right. Let me just say one more thing on that issue. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about this issue, he's talking as an apostle. And he says, I know it directly from the Lord Jesus that all foods are clean, but listen to me, right? On all these other issues, we do not have that same certainty. Do you know what I'm saying? We're not apostles. And so let's assume that we are the best, smartest, most acute theologians. We're all studying scripture. At best, we will be only maybe 80 to 90% right. That scares me, you know, like, wow, I'm maybe 80 90% right on these non-essential issues. And therefore, when we talk to each other, we should be humble. We should be willing to listen to one another because you know what? On that issue, you might be wrong. And you should try to understand the other side and try to appreciate so that you can learn, you know. That's what Paul is calling us to do, to really sympathize and understand. All right. The second thing, so that's the first thing, is to understand that it's over non-essential doctrines. The second thing Paul says is in chapter 15, verse 1, all the way down at the last paragraph there, at the first sentence, what does Paul say? He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So Paul says, bear with the failings of the weak. Now, once again, the English translation there is a little bit misleading because when you think of the word bear, to bear with the failings of someone, um, we kind of think, right, like to tolerate or to kind of endure. And uh, the image that I have in mind is a little baby Judah, right? Sometimes uh, my wife, Christina, will be caring for him, and uh, she will just be overcome with affection, and she'll start to pepper him with kisses and just love him and squeeze him. 
And then you should see the expression on Judah's face, right? I would not call it delight and enjoyment, but it's like this face of patient endurance, you know, long-suffering. Is that what Paul is talking about? Bear with those who are wrong in the church. Endure. Tolerate. No. When Paul uses the word bear, in the Greek, what it means, it means to carry a heavy burden. And the imagery that Paul is giving us is that the weak in faith are placing this heavy weight on the strong to carry. And so what does that mean? You see, what was going on in the Roman church is that the weak in faith were saying it is a sin to eat or drink certain foods. And what the, what the strong in the church in Rome were doing is they were saying, you stupid, foolish, weak Christians. Don't you realize that all food is clean? Look, can't you read scripture? What's wrong with you? I'm not going to let your personal hang-ups get in the way of my freedoms, my Christian liberty. You think eating meat is a sin? You don't want me to eat meat? I don't care. I'm going to eat this juicy steak right in front of you. And they'll pop it in their mouth and go, mmm, delicious. Paul is saying, that's not carrying the weight that the, the weak is placing on you. Paul is saying, rather set aside your rights and your privileges. And do whatever you can to adjust your life and your, your habits to make the weak in faith, those who are wrong, feel welcomed and embraced and loved. What Paul is saying is do everything out of love for the other person. Put the other person's interests and well-being and, and benefit ahead of your own. Don't just think your narrow way. Don't just think your own perspective. Don't push your agenda. Don't demand your own interests. But instead, make whatever adjustments and sacrifices you need to do to make that brother feel or sister feel welcomed and loved. So that if a brother in Christ says, I think eating meat is a sin, then your response should be, brother, I know this great vegetarian restaurant around the corner. Let's go eat and enjoy fellowship together. You know? And that, again, is not to say that you, you're, you're letting them be wrong, but that you're patient, you're loving, and you're adjusting your life. Because you know what? It takes time to change. You know, even, even when you're convinced in your mind, it takes time. And so you're embracing him. You're, you're adjusting your life now. That leads me to my third point. Where do we find the strength to do this? Because this is hard to do. And if you don't think this is hard to do, you have not been listening to me. Because when someone is seriously wrong, when you're absolutely convinced you are right and they are wrong, your natural instinct is to say, what is wrong with you? You stupid fool, right? How do we embrace that person who is wrong when everything in us screams no? When everything in us screams to please ourselves, to look to our own interests? Paul's answer is all the way down in chapter 15, verse 3, there in the last paragraph. Paul writes, for, and that word for means here's the, re here's the reason, for, Christ did not please himself. 
But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The Apostle Paul says, don't you realize Jesus did not please himself? And then he quotes Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a psalm of David. And the setting is David is surrounded by his enemies. And his enemies are just pouring down curses. That's what reproaches mean. They're just pouring on curses and sufferings and pain. And Paul is saying, don't you realize that that psalm is ultimately about Jesus Christ on the cross? And that is the answer. Because on the cross... Jesus laid aside his rights and privileges. On the cross, he did whatever it, whatever it took to make us feel welcome, to embrace us, to love us, to bring us into the Father's house. And at the same time, the cross tells us how profoundly wrong we are. There's never been a greater statement of our error than the cross. Because the cross tells us This is what you deserve. This is what your mistakes and sins and folly and error deserves, this excruciating death. And so therefore, the cross tells us two things, and this is the gospel. The cross tells us how profoundly wrong and sinful we are. And at the very same time, it tells us that Jesus Christ so loved us that he was not only willing to adjust his life and habits, Oh no, far more. He was not only willing to set aside his rights and privileges, he forfeited his very life to welcome us and embrace us. And therefore, listen, this is, this is it. This is the conclusion. Therefore, Christian community is gospel reenactment. Because it's doing what Jesus did for us and it's applying it to other people and doing it for other people. Because if we were wrong and Jesus made room in his life for us, then when other people are wrong, should we not make room in our lives for them? Should we not do the same thing that Jesus did for us, our, our very salvation? And therefore, think about this. When all of us are doing this, can you imagine what a community would be? When all of us are putting the other person's interest ahead of our own, when we think about their benefit, their interest, when we just want to love them and and sacrifice ourselves for them, what an amazing, beautiful, loving community we would be. And the world will look at us and say, surely the love of God is among you. Let's pray. Father, we confess we can't possibly love like this to embrace those we seriously disagree with. Because everything in us screams to assert our rights, to secure our comforts, to please ourselves. Lord, we pray that as we meditate and think about the gospel, it would transform us, that the Holy Spirit would implant in our hearts the love of Christ so that we can be the community of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.